Kära lyssnare, kära läsare, varmt välkomna till Kulturhuset Stadsteatern i Stockholm. Jag heter Ingemar Fast, jag är konstnärlig ledare för litteraturscenen i det stora allkonsthuset vid Särgelstorg. Nu ska ni få er till livs en hel afton med författaren och dramatiken Deborah Levy. Ni möter förutom vår hedersgäst Anna-Karin Palm, ni möter Jenny Thunedal och ni möter skådespelarna Tove Edfelt och Eva Stensson. Låt denna just det helafton ta sin början. In the spring of 91 I was browsing through a London bookstore when a new novel caught my eye. It was called Beautiful Mutants, and I had never heard of its author, Deborah Levy. I learned that Levy had previously written for the theatre and published a collection of short stories, but that this was her first novel, published in 1989. Something about the book attracted me, so I bought it and read it and fell in love with it. Set in London of the 90s, among a group of bizarrely original and utterly believable characters, Beautiful Mutants is a surreal contemporary fairy tale. I was enchanted by the Russian exile Lepinsky, who spends her last money on expensive lipstick and writes on electricity bills, this does not exist and her eccentric friends with names like the poet, the banker, and the anorectic anarchist. They all try to navigate in a city that is rapidly changing under the strict regime of Mrs. Thatcher, and in a global economy that that sets so many people adrift in so very many different ways. Levy's prose achieves a kind of hallucinating clarity in this book, as if our time was dreaming about itself, bringing forth these intensely luminous urban archetypes. Some of the scenes are unforgettable, like the woman who loses both her hands in an accident in the meat factory where she works, and reflects upon how many tourists has unwittingly eaten her flesh mixed in with the hamburgers. Beautiful Mutants is a poetic and political novel, ranging and deeply compassionate. It made me curious about its author. And in the spring of 1992, I interviewed Deborah Levy in her then home in Brixton for BLM magazine. I also translated a couple of passages from the book for publication in the magazine, and thus I'm very proud to say that I actually was the one who introduced Deborah Levy to Sweden. (laughs) In that interview from 30 years ago, Deborah touched upon many of the themes that has been present in her writing ever since. She talked about how she was born in South Africa, where her father was a political prisoner for several years due to his involvement with the ANC, and how the family moved to England when she was nine years old. But she also said that she was interested in the concept of exile in a wider sense, 
all the parts of ourselves that we are forced to deny or drive into exile. She expressed her interest in the relationship between the center and the periphery, between power and powerlessness. Back then, Levy moved between the expressions of the theater and the novel, and she said that she strived for a visual, physical exploration of the world through the written word. The visual has always been prominent in the prose of Levy, as well as the twisted, somehow unruly dialogues that allows her characters to appear as greater than the text itself. She often writes about displaced people without a stable home in the world, people in some kind of exile, inner or outer. In her text, the perspectives are quickly shifting. There are no stable narrative or narrators in Levy's books, but rather a flow of stories and voices that are constantly colliding with and impregnating each other. After five published books between 1987 and 1999, I hope I got that right now, Levy spent many years successfully writing for the theatre and I lost touch with her work. But her return to the novel in 2011 with Swimming Home was a great success and established her as one of the most interesting writers of our time. Someone like me, who had followed Levy's writing since the debut, recognizes many themes in this magnificent novel. The pain of exile, the unreliability of any stable identity, the small lies that are often hiding greater and more painful secrets, the movement of history and time through our bodies. But with Swimming Home, Levy displayed a new narrative confidence compared to her earlier novels. Maybe the confidence that comes from paying great attention to one's own literary style and bravely holding fast one's own gaze upon the world, regardless of trends and fashions, trends and tendencies in literary fashion. It is as if Levy, with the swimming home, found a vital and dynamic fusion of the drama and the novel, a narrative room that is open and generous for the reader to enter, and where the writer has such control over her, over her style that the text can offer resistance at the same time as it seduces the reader. The novel was published in, Swede, in a Swedish translation by Kerstin Gustafsson in 2013, Simma Hem. Swimming Home was followed in 2013 by the short story collection Black Vodka and in 2016 by Hot Milk, a novel that circles a complicated mother-daughter relationship. Reality and mythology blends in this constantly surprising story about women's anger and bodies, about families and strangers, and about the difficulty of making your own life story coherent enough to live with. Like Swimming Home, Hot Milk became an international success, and both novels were shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize. The Swedish translation by Eva Åsefeldt came out in 2019, Varme Mjölk. 
Her most recent novel, The Man Who Saw Everything, was published in 2019. The Swedish version, again translated by Eva Åsefeldt, published in 2020, Mannen som visste allt. As usual in Levy's work, the characters are complex and attractive, but with a secretive side that eludes and fascinates the reader. And, as always, their personal destinies are tightly bound together with the society they live in. This is a masterly novel, which uses the tools and possibilities of fiction in a very intelligent way. The theme of the novel concerns the problems of seeing and perception. How do we see ourselves and each other? How much do we actually perceive of our surroundings, of the people that are closest to us? Whose perception is allowed to dominate narrative? Whose percep perception is in the power? The novel begins in 1988, but already from the first scenes of the book, there is something weird going on, a kind of leaking between different times and eras as if not only the main character, Saul, who in the opening scene has been hit by a car, but the novel itself is afflicted by vertigo. It is often the case when reading Levy that just when you think you have understood one of her characters, they do or say something that totally changes your take on them. In The Man Who Saw Everything, this unreliability is built into the very structure of the novel. The reader is forced to work out the puzzle of Saul's memories and stories, often contradicted by the people around him, as the novel becomes a kaleidoscopic labyrinth where the reader must pay great attention to detail and stay suspicious of the narrator Saul's version of reality. Ultimately, this becomes a deeply moving story about power and love, time and history. And if what I say here sounds too analytical, I must add that the novel is also very enjoyable and engaging to read. In 2013, Deborah Levy published the first of three autobiographical essays, Things I Don't Want to Know. This was followed in 2018 by The Cost of Living, and the trilogy completed last spring with Real Estate. The three books, as we have seen, uh, are now translated into Swedish by Eva Åsefeldt and published in one volume with the title Kolossal Frihet. Personally, I have to say that these three essays, or living biography, or living autobiographies, are among the most interesting books I have read lately and inspiring on so many different levels. The first volume has the subtitle, A Response to George Orwell's 1946 essay, Why I Write. And all through the trilogy, Levy explores the question of what it means to be a writer, a woman, a mother, and an individual yearning to live a freer life. The form is open and inviting, 
like a long conversation around a kitchen table that spans from anecdotes and personal memories to political and philosophical reflections and lasts until dawn, the best kind of conversation there is. And Levy's style in the essays are crystal clear, deceptively simple and deeply penetrating, witty and sharp, as well as warm and sad. There is a particular generosity in these essays. The writer shares her experiences, thoughts and feelings with you and encourages you to take a long, hard look at your own life and the world you live in. So, now let me end this introduction with a quote from The Cost of Living. To separate from love is to live a risk-free life. What's the point of that sort of life? I was living in the Republic of Writing and Children. I was not Simone de Beauvoir, after all. No, I had got off the train at a different stop, marriage and stepped onto a different platform, children. She was my muse, but I was certainly not hers. Yet we had bought a ticket for the same train. The destination was to head towards a freer life. That is a vague destination. No one knows what it looks like when we get there. It is a journey without end, but I did not know that then. And with that, I leave the stage to Jenny Tunedal and Deborah Levy. A very warm welcome to you. My little pile here. <coughs> Good evening, Deborah. Good evening, Jenny. <laughs> Thank you so much for that, those generous words. I'm so moved. I, I can barely speak, but I'll recover. Thank you. Uh, I am very pleased to get this opportunity to talk to you about, well, your whole body of writing, but about this body of writing in particular, these three books that have now transformed into one volume in Swedish, translated by Eva. Uh, my first question to you is about talking and writing. In a text that I have read many times called What are Masterpieces and Why Are There So Few of Them? Gertrude Stein writes about the difference between talking and writing. When you talk, you are stuck in identity and in human nature. And those, according to Stein, have nothing to do with masterpieces. When you talk, you have to remember to be yourself. When you write, you have the freedom to be someone else. And I thought about this when preparing this talk because I thought about the difference and the distance between the eye of these, this masterpiece, these masterpieces that your living autobiographies are and the eye that is sitting here with me tonight. 
I thought about collapsing the, that distance and about not doing that. And I think my first question to you is about what is it like for you to sort of embody experience outside of the text instead of inside it? What's it like for you to travel with these books and mm. talk about them? Yes, well, you start with Gertrude Stein. Yes, because um, she's in these. Yeah, I mean, she said, I am I because my little dog loves me. <laughs> she did. Um, and she certainly, in my view, I'm writing about Gertrude Stein, uh, her talking was more interesting than her writing, often to me. Um, and writing is not the same thing, obviously, as, as talking. Um, unless we're going to edit our talk at the bus stop and in the grocery and rewrite how we ask for <laughs> six eggs. Um, so the I in the living autobiographies is, um, is a narrator who is very like myself, but not quite myself. I had to find a voice to steer the three books um, a voice, actually, that I could bear to live with in three books, <laughs> mm -hmm. never, never mind the reader. So what kind of voice was that going to be? So the I that would really annoy me would be to be very opinionated, to have their mind made up about everything, um, to have no feelings, to... Uh, want to um, intellectually uh, boast about all the clever books they'd read, right? Um, <clears throat> so it had to be the opposite of propaganda. Mm. And that sort of I, which we all are sitting, sitting here, the sort of I that um, is very powerful on Monday, and a little bit fragile on Wednesday, and we can coexist and live, I hope, with these two differences, um, it was going to be the I for, for these books. And um, so it's a porous I. The world, it's an I that filled with the world, uh, because otherwise it would be so claustrophobic, right? So it walks into the, the, I, the eye walks into the world, the narrator walks into the world with some very human problems um, and some and any number of, of, of thoughts and, um, and stuff happens. But it's not a fixed eye. Um, and that is hard to write. Because in a novel, you know, we have characters, and the characters are our avatars. So the characters, there's a sort of sleight of hand, you know, because the, the characters are there really to um, support the arguments of the writer. <laughs> um, and all of that. And there's one other thing, actually, um, that I always forget to say 
but the great generosity of uh, Ingmar Fars' extraordinary introduction and Anna Karen's is I decided to never describe the narrator, who is quite like myself, to describe what she looks like. This, um, I think there are maybe two or three lines in the, th in the books that might go a little bit there, but there are only three lines because I really wanted her mind to be what, and, and the way she uses language mm. and what she laughs at and what she cries at to describe her for you. So I've never done that in a book. That's 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 a first. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's interesting. I mean, that's part of, I guess. I wanted to ask you about that as well. What a kind of, uh, I mean, the tools of fiction that you use, which such enormous precision in your novels, uh, were they there for you in the same way in? Writing this, yeah. Well, I hope so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be terrible if they ran away. We're going on holiday. Yeah, but I'm just um, think there's. We we're going to leave you now with the tools of something memoir-ish. Hmm. Oh my goodness, that would be a terrible day. It's a very good question because um, because you have to create something. In, that's, that is like an artifice, I think is what you're saying, in a living autobiography, because it's not a conversation in a pub, mm. right? So um, the tools of, of fiction, which um, started very young, you know, when I wrote my first novel, <laughs> that, it, was, it was lovely to hear about my first novel, Beautiful Mutants, the first line... I think was the only line of a book my mother really loved because it was, uh, my mother was the ice skating champion of Moscow. Yeah. She thought that was great. <laughs> and, um, but I remember, you know, sort of this, this was a typewriter, uh, age 27 or maybe even 25. He put the... Uh, paper in with some carbon. My daughters don't even know what carbon paper is to make a copy, you know. And if you if you pressed an E instead of an F, you had to tipex it with and then you you blew on it and you waited then you took the carriage there <laughs> and you pressed the yeah. E. There was a real feeling of being an artisan mm. um, with the typewriter. Not that I ever wanted back you know, I'm not a nostalgic person, but I think about the endeavor of writing, you know, and rewriting that first book, Beautiful Mutants, you know. Um, one of my memories is a bin full of paper that I've taken out of the throne and started again. That's really true, because I was having to learn to make the transition from being a playwright to writing prose. So the the... Uh, for plays, the, 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 it goes down like this on the page, and for prose, kind of like that. And um, we didn't have creative writing classes 
like everybody has now. You just really had to learn on the job. Um, so by the time, in answer to your question, by the time I came uh, to, to this book, these three books that have been put so uh, beautifully together um, he, uh, here, um, the tools of fiction writing, hopefully, were very honed, and they were an enormous help. And you will know this as a poet as well, because just because you're writing something called a living autobiography, which, by the way, is a completely made-up term, and I encourage you to make things up, you know, um, so that when you describe your own lives, you describe them in a way that pleases you before anyone else writes up your life. <laughs> um, so... Um, living autobiography, something in the present tense, something vital, something alive. Um, uh, not always looking back to the past, but the past comes in. Uh, by the time I came to this, uh, I had to use every tool. Poetry, that would be the cadence, um, of the sentence, of the it's sentence, extremely rhythmical. The, the rhythm of a sentence. I mean, you know, examples. Let's just let's just do that, because there's a strange idea about autobiographical writing. Um, I'm just I'm just going to go in anywhere. Okay. I own the books that I have written and bequeath the royalties to my daughters. In this sense, my books are my real estate. They are not private property. There are no fierce dogs or security guards at the gate. And there are no signs forbidding anyone to dive, splash, kiss, fail, feel fury or fear, or be tender or tearful, and blah, and blah, and blah, and blah. I don't want to give away too much. Um, <coughs> so, so all the tools mm. of, of, of a poet as, mm. as well. Um, use everything because it's so hard to <laughs> it's so hard to write and at the same time to create what appears to be a very light surface um, to that's of great interest to mm. me to, to create a surface and then a depth charge um, underneath it that's really where I'm at as a, as a writer these mm. days mm. Uh, you have uh, you have taken f well the first book is sort of written as a response uh, to George Orwell's short text Why I Write maybe not a response yes. but you have taken four categories from his short text which yeah. he published in 1946 and it's political purpose, historical impulse, sheer egoism, and aesthetic enthusiasm. And rereading your these three works, and also m very many other of your books, I find that these, these four categories are at work in all of them. And I think... It's very interesting how you 
use them also in that first book. The first one is political purpose. And one of the things George Orwell says in his text is that looking back on his work, the books that have become lifeless or lacking in style is invariably the books that are lacking in political purpose. And your writing to me seems very concerned with political purpose. The politics of the world, of the family, of language, the politics of desire, maybe mm. the politics of the unconscious even, if there is such a thing. I don't think the unconscious has politics. Oh, I don't think so either. I think it's just really out of control. <laughs> But I wanted to ask you, what does it mean for you to be a political writer? Yeah, well, um, so I took those four headings. I think stole is the word mm. from George Orwell. So he'd written this, this was, I think this was published in 1946. So I often think about that time he's writing it because the war is just coming to an end. Um, It's quite a strange essay to be writing at that time, yeah. but but maybe it's a very pertinent time to be writing. Why you know why I write? So George Orwell didn't write that essay for me. He really wrote it for men. I'm a great admirer of George Orwell, by the way, but um, I don't think he even conceived of female writers, and um, and I like to think of him smoking, chain smoking, this typewriter and drinking very strong British tea, um, muddy like a river, you know, that's what he did. And he was a man of incredible, not just principle, of, of vulnerability too, a man of his class who went to Eton and was supposed to be a servant of the empire. Um, so, you know, his great essays, Shooting an Elephant and, and all of that, where he really came to hate imperialism. He has this amazing line, the imperialist wears a mask and his face grows to fit it. Yeah, we know this in our own lives. Um, it's a rather unfortunate thing with the pandemic <laughs> to talk about masks, isn't it? Um, Uh, but um, we know in our lives that, you know, we, we create a sort of, uh, if we don't use the word mask, what would another word be? We create a persona that um, maybe we don't like so much, very stern, you know, but then gradually we begin, our face begins to fit it. And that's not a good idea in life. So um, no one coined that better than, George Orwell. So yeah, I am a political writer. I don't necessarily think that, but but I don't really like to be nailed like that, like a uh, like a surrealist writer. You could say I was as well. Well, that's a strange mix. Mm -hmm. um, I've been called a Freudian writer. I don't really like that either. So you know. Um, in the end, I think I would say I'm a writer. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, oh, you love that, yeah. 
Um, I think I think about uh, this first book and about this sequence when you are talking about learning how to read, and this I think has to do when I read it. It has to do with maybe what it is to learn to read and write and what ha that has to do with the politics of the world. Because when you describe how you have you, her, the yeah. the girl in the book. You can say narrator. <laughs> yeah. The narrator. You can say you. Yeah. I own up. Yeah. 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 Uh she is being taught how to read in school by yeah. the sisters. But they don't know that she already knows how to read. Yeah. And in directly after the sentence where you say that she has learned how to read comes this sign. She understands the signs on the beaches saying this bathing area is reserved for the sole use of members of the white race. Yeah, so this is South Africa. Yeah. My childhood in South Africa, yeah. Yeah. And that, to me, that creates a kind of instant uh, connection between learning how to read and coming in contact with the violence of the world. Yeah, because you know what it is, Yanni? It, it, it's um, all writing is really about what we notice. So we know this when we read a book. It can be beautifully written and the sentences are all amazingly constructed. And we're just bored, you know. Um, and why is that? Uh, because I'm not interested in what the writer is noticing or I'm not really interested in how the writer thinks. Um, so there can be many beautiful sentences, but, you know, gosh, no. I, um, <clears throat> so <clears throat> you're absolutely right. So, so are you referring to the first part of the book where I'm, I'm talking about growing up in South Africa and the violence of apartheid and learning to read? And what is it that I read but these signs on the beaches, these, these, these beaches are reserved for. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, so you think, what's the point of learning to read, to read this? Exactly. You know, so then we, maybe that was the first sort of stirring. Well, then we need to make, I mean, we need to make another sort of language. <laughs> this language is, is the worst. Mm. Mm -hmm. This is the worst you can do mm -hmm. with language. Yes, yeah. there is a very strong sense yeah. in that part of the book that there's this urgency to to create a different language. To yes, to and I and I pick it up all through the book because obviously you know language interests me not just as a writer. It it really interests me as um, uh, <clears throat> everyday everyday language. Um, but that's not really what I mean. So um, you can look at signs and it goes, look at a sign in a swimming pool um, and it goes, no diving, no eating, no drinking, no kissing. There are a lot of no's. 
So then you can say, well, what if we flipped that and we go, yes, yes to diving, yes to splashing, yes to kissing. Um, the world changes a little bit. Mm. And that's just changing a yes and a no. So language is the, the big adventure in my life, not just about constructing the perfect sentences and all of that, but because it makes our world a better place. You, you change those signs, the language and those signs. And it's and all the same language, right? I mean, language is the same in the most exquisite sentence in a book and on the sign. It's the same material. Uh, it is a material, yeah, yeah and 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 it can change. Um, it can make it can make us happier, and it can make us sadder. But we can change the yes, the no to a yes, and the yes to a no, and the journey between something so simple is epic and enormous. Mm. Mm. I thought about teaching, actually, and I know that it's a word that sounds boring. No one wants to be a teacher. But I do think that reading your books, and I'm not only thinking about these books, I'm thinking to a large extent also about your novels, are also an experience of learning how to read, how to read the presence of the myth, the dream, the unreal, the unspoken, in the desire, in the daily relationships between people, between lovers and between family members. And Anna Karin said something, she said that she gets the sense that the characters in your novel are larger than the text. I thought that was so beautiful. Uh, and that has been my experience too, uh, that they expand beyond the text. They get me thinking things like, wow, my neighbor is Kitty Finch, perhaps. <laughs> uh, my mother isn't Rose, but maybe she is. Did I used to date Saul Adler? I I get the sense that it's also your characters, they're never servants of the story. Of course they are. You said that they are the, at the writer's beck and call, but, mm. but they also seem very free. Good. Well, yeah. um, <laughs> well then, how do we answer that? Um, so Roland Barthes, Talked when he wrote about writing, he said, certain kinds of writing have a kind of behavior. I really like that description because mm -hmm. we all have a behavior, you know, and um, sometimes we try and change our behavior. And um, so there is the behavior of the novel. And uh, sometimes that's a real drag. You think, oh, this sounds this this is reading just like a novel. Um, you know, um, it's as if there is a very dusty form 
to the novel that um, uh, it would be better to have a novel appear to be, uh, to behave in a, in a way that isn't quite novel-like, but the truth is it's behaving pretty much like a novel. So that's technique, mm. right? But it is true about the characters having a freedom. And, and what I mean by that is it is important to grant the dignity of freedom of thought to every single character, minor characters and major characters. And sometimes uh, in my books, the minor characters, they have a word with me. They say, you haven't given me enough lines. I think I'm more important than you think you, we are. And I really have these conversations saying, no, you're not, actually. <clears throat> you, 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 have, you, you can just stay there now. Um, uh, this is going to be a long writing night, and um, I don't think you're really as important as you think you are. And I keep writing the major characters, and then the minor characters say, no, I think you've underestimated uh, what we can do. And this is right to me, because you have to grant, uh, obviously there are characters that you encourage readers to like more mm. than other characters. So actually, the characters that you encourage readers to dislike, I believe the writer has to do a lot of work on those characters. So, um, Hot Milk is an example where Sophia's father is an absent father. He, he, he walked out in the family home when she was six, and she meets him again in Athens. And, um, <clears throat> and he's playing with the napkins. They meet in a kind of cafe, and he's nervous, and he can't speak, and he can't apologize, and he, he's tongue-tied, and he's hopeless. And uh, he's playing with the napkins, and he makes a sort of flower from the napkins. And he gives them, gives it to her. And she finds herself, when she's packing, just putting this flower on top of the uh, clothes in her suitcase so it won't get too squashed. And we know that it meant something. So I don't really write, it meant something to her. I write that it meant something to him to make it for her, something very ordinary and all of that. And that's the character telling me, you know, I don't know how to put this right. I don't know, I don't have the words. Now, obviously, I have the words for him. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> right? But it's much more interesting for him not to have the words and, and to have an action, and for her action to be to, well, uh, you know, to save it. And I often think sometimes these things live with me when I finish the book, Norstead, my brilliant publisher and editor, Gunella Sodell, that they've, it's finished, you know, and it's with you, and I'm still thinking about that flower that uh, Sophia has kept. And I think, should I, have, um, should I have had her throw it away somewhere in the book so she can move on? 
or should I have had her, should it have come back in some way? Because actually it's stuck in the suitcase. These things carry on for me, you know. Um, so that's a very long answer uh, to that question. Mm. Pardon. Mm. Uh, historical impulse. Yes. Yes. Uh, I, we've you've already quoted from the first novel, Beautiful Mutants. I think I also, I think that your first sentence there is very beautiful, and it goes on to say that I. She said I was conceived on the marble slab of a war memorial, both she and my father in their Sunday best. I came into being on a pile of corpses in the bitter snows of midwinter. <laughs> That's the first novel for you. Yeah. But <laughs> it's historical impulse. And then in, in Swimming Home... And Nina says in the epilogue, I never got a grip on where the past begins or where it ends. But if cities map the past with statues made from bronze forever frozen in one dignified position, as much as I try to make the past keep still and mind its manners, it moves and murmurs with me through every day. So in your books, there's a historical impulse on a both collective and uh, individual level that is at work constantly, yes. isn't it? Yes. So historical impulse is the second of George Orwell's motivations to write. So we've done political purpose. His second one was historical impulse. And the very good point being made um, is that although I give this an airing in Colossal Freedom, uh, it's in all the books, mm. absolutely, because history is inside us and history is in the world. And we are trapped by history and we make history. Um, and um, so um, it would be really odd, I think, for it not to be in some way in my books. Actually, I, I am a historian's daughter. Yes. Yeah, you know, my father was uh, a historian. And um, so uh, it occurs to me that that might, might be interesting. Um, but in the writing, because, you know, I'm just thinking out loud, because usually when you write, you want to shake off your parents, right? You're not writing to please them. But maybe there is something there. I think maybe you're onto something. Um, <clears throat> I was taught that history is something alive. Yeah. It's not a frozen statue. Mm. Um, I always laugh when I see birds on very important, uh, you know, figures in history, statues, and you suddenly see a bird on top of the head, and you feel that this is right in some way. Um, because history is there to be rewritten mm. and um, rearranged, but it is in all my books and it's definitely in the living, aut living autobiography. And it's in this room and it's inside you. 
and some of it you'd like to shake off and some of it you're very happy with. And we tend to rewrite it, um, all of us, while we're on the bus, you know. We, we tend to rewrite history, um, our personal histories and other people's histories. Sometimes we even do that. Um, so it's a moving, lively, vital thing. And this is the thing about language. It has to be, it has to have vitality. That's not to say it's all exclamation marks. It can be very calm and quiet and inward. But um, uh, dead language is language that is just vain that is um, preposterously egotistical um, and has no idea how to enter anyone else's subjectivity, you know? So writing a living autobiography, um, perhaps the trick of it is, is that you're actually writing about other people. Mm. Mm. Yes, you do write a lot about other people. I mean, this this narrator is very open to other people or to the impulses of other people. Very, her attention is very much directed, I mean, to herself, but also to other people. Yeah. A lot of the most. Uh, I mean, it's as if she is thinking together with other people almost. Someone says something to her en passant, like her best male friend says <clears throat> of her, his wife, she's pretending to be unhappy. And the narrator sort of stays with that single sentence and dwells on it. Why do you think she's pretending? Mm. 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 <laughs> That's a very good question. Um, so, yeah, so, so you know... You can ask a question, but you don't have to answer it mm. until maybe 25 pages later. Mm. Mm. So, so the flow of questions and answers is very interesting to, to write, always. Um, I always, I, I think um, sometimes of that panic we all have when we uh, feel we have to answer a question uh, immediately most of us can come up with something, you know. But then there are some questions that you spend your life thinking about. And you have a number of answers. Um, and this is, of course, part of writing, too. So the more interesting the question, really, the more interesting the, the answer. Um, but we, we, we can spend a life asking, uh, why did I do that? Why did I say this? Um, th those are the sort of you know. But we can we can. Why did I? Why? Or why did you? Or, mm. or um, this can go on for a lifetime. And this is this is the life of the mind. This is the con. You know, this is what consciousness is about. And books have to be full of that. Mm because that is life. My books are made from the imagination and from life. 
I was just thinking now uh, slowly about what you said about rewriting your life on the bus. It came back to me because I think these books are also, that's what makes them so alive. They are also very much a rewriting rather than a writing. I mean, they are, you're sort of together with the narrator as she makes a discovery about her life. I wasn't happy on the train, I was sad, or I don't need this, I need that. It's a very simultaneous experience. Mm. I never write a line like I was sad. No. But I, I just have to say that. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And what's the question? It was just a uh, reflection. Yes, a reflection. On the yes, rewriting. Uh, oh, oh, yes, that, that idea that we think together. Well, that's so true. I mean, here is something. You know, my books really are about living and writing. They, we Making it sound as if they're all about writing. And I'm about to contradict this because I'm going to read just a, a, f a few lines which are about writing. <laughs> but they're re really about living and thinking. Um... I suppose that my literary purpose was to think freely, or rather for the books to speak freely on my behalf. If this sounds easy and obvious, it is not easy, not on the page or in life. Some people feel crazy when they try to deal with two contradictory thoughts at the same time as if they fear they have done something wrong and need to purge the intruding thought before it muddies the water. The point of thinking is that it will always muddy the water. So how do we live with our free thoughts and the mud? In Western European realist fiction, what is a writer going to do with the irrational with synchronicities, with superstition, and the private magic that we invent to keep us out of harm's way, with the uncanny, with thought streams and digressions that contradict our attempt to fix the story. Can we accept that language is sacred and scared and it's scarred as well? Because that's how we all are. Mm. That is how we all are. Uh, I wanted to ask you, you, you have, uh, to me it's, I mean several other writers are important in these works. Mm. Uh, Gertrude Stein I mentioned already, and Duras is perhaps the Marguerite Duras. Yes, she's a very important figure, yes. and she, she, and also Virginia Woolf yes. is very present. James Baldwin. Yes. Oscar Wilde. Yes. Yeah. yeah there Nietzsche. Are many, many. Nietzsche was interesting on autobiographic, actually autobiography. Um, I think I, qu I, I quote um, him. He says something like, uh, "He believes that all philosophy." is the involuntary, unconscious memoir mm. of its author. Mm. So that would be Aristotle writing about himself, Plato, um, 
Hobbes. <laughs> we could we 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 could go on. Do you um, agree? Sorry. Do you agree? Yeah. With ab absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Philosophy is also mm. a I kind saw of a, living. A, a really great painting by Munch yesterday of Nietzsche. These inflamed moustache. Mm. Um, uh, staring out and, and the death mask of Nietzsche. Um, so, really great to see it here. Mm. Uh, but uh, Duras, she has said that to write your whole life teaches you how to write. It doesn't save you from anything. I think she writes in her last yeah. book. Yes. Do you agree with that statement? Yeah, absolutely. Who wants to write their whole life anyway? I mean, not me. I want to write um, a very select part of life, of turbulent female experience, and uh, give it some value, give it some meaning, give it, uh, uh, it you know, it's such an underwritten... Uh, it's important to me to write it because it's underwritten mm. and, uh, and to put it out there in the world. Uh, why not? But um, uh, no, writing doesn't save you from anything. Um, well, maybe it saves you from boredom. Maybe it earns yeah. you a bit of money. Maybe it um, uh, it does all sorts of things. But it's not the writing; it's language. And obviously, writers have to be interested, but many aren't in language. So, as I say, it's not just the sort of word count and the making of sentences. It's 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 the fact that that. Um, Language can make our world a better place. It can't change the world. It can make it a more interesting place. Um, here's an example. Uh, in, um, in this book, uh, in the section called The Cost of Living, the narrator's marriage is on the rocks. She moves out of the family home with her daughters and they move into an apartment. And the apartment, the corridors are, are in a state of, uh, they really need some painting, the communal corridors. They gray and they need to be restored. So I have a joke in the book, I call them the corridors of love. <laughs> because these corridors need, like love, at this moment in, in, the, in the narrator's life, love needs to be repaired. So then I was, so the corridors of love, there they are, um, and I was on book tour in Ireland, and there was a woman in the audience, and uh, in the question time, she said, oh, could I please ask you, Deborah, have the corridors of love been restored? <laughs> and I said, well, you know, I've never been asked an interior decoration question uh, before on book tour. And she laughed because she knew the, how much I enjoyed her question. But what I'd really enjoyed was how she had accepted that language, mm. the corridors of love. Mm. Um, I thought, yes, that's what language can do. Mm. And, um, and that it had meant something to her. And she really wanted them. So I, I know you understand the different levels that works on, but on the one hand, she really wants them to be repainted, literally, 
and she also wants love to be restored. Mm. And so that we, we, we all can, we are all really, all of us, very good readers and writers on that level. Mm. <coughs> but if writing doesn't save you, does, could reading save you from anything then? I have a hope that uh, writing does save you from something. Um, I think reading gives us a home. So this is so this is this is the the theme of real estate, which is the last part of um, of of colossal freedom. And um, I'm looking at in, in real estate the strange. These strange words, again, I think it's American term, real estate. I'm looking at an expanded idea of property. So on the one hand, it's about a very real longing for a home, for a house. And is a house the same thing as a home? Because there are plenty of us who haven't felt very at home in our house. Right? There are plenty of women who felt like that. And um, and I'm sure all of us, somewhere in life, you know, um, kids growing up in unhappy families haven't felt at home in the house. So that's a little slippage that we can all, I think, understand and have experienced. And then I'm looking at unreal estate, all the imagined homes that um, the narrator devises, you know, oh yes, it's a house with a pomegranate tree, that's what I want, and a river. And then we begin to plant the garden of this imaginary house and furnish it. And we put all this unreal estate into our property portfolio. So there's plenty of that in, 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 in this book. And then there's the idea of patriarchy. So if, um, if patriarchy is the big mansion built on the land and it owns the deeds to the land, um, who are its sitting tenants? Okay, so that's another one. And then there is... Uh, sorry, so, so it's expanded. I expand on this idea of property and belongings. And then there are books, and you said, can books save us? Well, maybe they can, um, maybe they give us a home, because I remember all that epic reading I did um, and continue to do. But really, when I was a young woman, it was like a home, all those great works of literature that were like, Another world, to be able to slip into another world was a home. And then this is a home. Look, you know, um, he, he, here we all are in this uh, so, so beautifully hospitable, how beautifully hosted by Ingmar. Um, uh, this is made from language. This is what, what we're here for. So, um, so we are all sitting around the table um, in this home. So that's another, yeah. another dimension to real estate. 
Yeah. I mean, there is this interesting uh, uh, movement in the book from from the the shed or the room of one's own, a shed of your own. Uh, yeah. You need that in order to write, but then you also need the real estate or the unreal estate and the home. And I was thinking about Virginia Woolf's uh, text, A Room of One's Own, that she has, she states, of course, the, the necessity for the room uh, of your own as a woman and a writer. But she also talks about the fact that Jane Austen didn't have a room of her own. She was sitting mm. amongst other people, amongst mm. her family, and that that made her maybe a keen a very attentive writer. She writes something like that. Mm -hmm. And I thought of that when I read these volumes because they're sort of... <coughs> the shed is very important, but but leaving the shed is also very important. Uh, to mm -hmm. be in all these conversations and to travel and to to look for the home as a way of writing as well, maybe. I'm not sure I agree with Virginia Woolf there about Jane Austen. Mm. So the idea was that she was sitting there observing and writing. Yeah. I don't believe that. I think she might have done that for some of the time. And then she went off on her own and she wrote and she wrote and she wrote. That's what I believe. I don't believe we just sit there and write. Um, it's quite possible to observe um, and to write in your head, uh, but much more uh, horrifying to write on the page because you have to have the writing <laughs> that you hope to achieve in your head actually on the page uh, made manifest. But Virginia Woolf was absolutely right. She nailed it. And um, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? A room of one's own. But for her generation, you had to marry, if you were a woman, to... Well, I don't think you'd have a room of your own. You might have a house of their own or something like that. Um, but she absolutely got it for those universities, female university students. Um, that she wrote that essay for at the time um, because it would be very hard for them to achieve a, a room of their own. I mean, if you go back to Gertrude Stein, which is where we began, Gertrude Stein had a trust fund. She had inherited wealth. And had she not had that, uh. what was she going to do? Mm. She would have maybe have had to write some different kinds of books, you know, yeah. for a while. Mm. Um, so Virginia Woolf was very practical. And the thing that uh, really touches me about her is that many, many things. I love her dearly. Um, and To the Lighthouse is my favorite of her novels. Um, is that when she got her very first job, which is to write a review of a book, and she got her first paycheck, she what did she buy? A Persian cat. I just find that so sweet. <laughs> that is very sweet. Um, 
We've been talking for a long time. Uh, there is... Oh, I have so many questions. Maybe one more? Maybe one more. I have to pick the best one then. Um, maybe this is not the best one. But it's it's one I really want to ask you. To separate from love is to live a risk-free life. What's the point of that sort of life, you write? Yeah. You also write, to live without love is a waste of time. And then there's, when love goes wrong, everything goes wrong. What is love in those sentences? Okay, we're going to leave this building at about four in the morning. Yeah, sorry, but... Make yourself comfortable. Um, I'll answer it this way. Um, it's much more interesting to write from a position of love than a position of hate, mm. especially this kind of book. And why is that? Because there's so many more risks in love. You've just got so much more to lose than with hate. So... I really wanted to flag that up um, in in this book, um, you know, and um, and then there's an expanded view of love as well, many kinds of love, and it just as just as there are many kinds of property. So just as this book is in fact a property, mm. uh, a home of of, of some kind. Um, so is love, and sometimes we have to leave that home and make another one. Mm. And um, but that's my only point: is that um, the risk of love is worth taking. What's the point of a life with, uh, in which we took no risks? You know, you say, no, you know, in my life I never took one single risk. You look back on that and you think, oh, that's so sad. Um, so every book has to take a risk um, to make something happen, something new happen, and, um, and to keep language on its toes and dancing. Hey, thank you very much. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you. Do we, do we go again? I think we. I think so. Let's see what is happening here. There have we done. Thank you so much, Deborah and Yanni. And now, the third act and the reading. And now you will experience some Swedish. The reading will be in Swedish. So. We begin like this. Pushing the Prince into Denmark skrevs ursprungligen för Catherine Stark och Hilary Tones som en föreställning för Royal Shakespeare Company Stratford 1991. Personer, Ophelia, Gertrud. Scen, två mikrofoner som Gertrud och Ophelia talar i. En film projiceras på scenen. Den visar en vidsträckt vinterhimmel och snö som faller. 
Filmen spelas pjäsen igenom. Ophelia har ullvantar på händerna. Författarens anmärkning. I Shakespeare's pjäs verkar både Hamlet och Ophelia hela tiden bli tillsagda av de äldre personerna att ta sitt snor och sina tårar och gå någon annanstans. Det är med detta i åtanke jag får Gertrud att envist parera Ophelias försök att uttrycka hur olycklig hon är. När Gertrud säger sluta menar hon därmed sluta vara ledsen. Ophelia kan bara svara hur då? Under pjäsens gång finns anvisningar om att ett band av Cocteau Twins ska spelas. A dash of Cocteau Twins. And why not? A dash of snow. Gertrud och Ophelia tar plats vid mikrofonen. Sluta. Hur då? Men låt det vara. Var? Hitta annat att tänka på. Hur då? Hitta något. Borta. Leta rätt på det. Försvunnet. Sluta. Kan inte. Men kom på hur. Berätta för mig. Nå men då så. Jag bara undrar. Allt är täckt av snö. Träden är snötunga. Himlen är snötung. Det är missnöjets vinter. Idag bär jag sammet. Idag känner jag mig fin. Idag åt jag fasan till lunch. Ljuva och felia. Vinden har mojnat. Du är en sån fitta, Gertrud. Idag ligger vi i krig. Idag är jag ful. Varje natt har jag isen spricka. Varje natt somnar jag med en varm kopp mot bröstet. Jag vaknar och är blöt eftersom koppen har fallit ur min hand. Skollad sover jag vidare. Om jag sover gott om natten och du hemsöks av demoner så måste du ha ett svårmod i dig som kräver demoner. Ett svårmod som kräver demoner. Fasan. Lite rå. Jag har ont i magen, men det är förstås privat. Jag tittar ut genom fönstret och ser att snön faller. Det finns människor som sover ute i snön. De är fulla och de är galna. Och de har rymt från sina familjer. Sluta. Hur då? Låt det vara. Var? Någon annanstans. Kan inte. Någon annanstans. Kan inte. Kom på hur. Berätta för mig. Nå men då så. Jag bara undrar. Vinter och krig är bistra vapenbröder. Idag blåste vinden om kull två skepp. Men dog. Detta såg jag inte själv. Jag fick det rapporterat för mig. I kväll ska jag dricka vin med min man. Vi ska sitta vid en brasa av brinnande granved och samtala om sådant som hänt under dagen. 
Vi har köpt egendom i Norge. Vi har köpt egendom i Norge. Juva Ophelia. Sjön där isen har legat så länge är full av fåglar nu. Nio döda fåglar på isen, din idiot. Ung och vacker. Goda skäl att vakna lätt till sinnes. Att vakna lätt till sinnes. Hitta annat att tänka på. Var? Hitta något. Borta. Leta rätt på det. Försvunnet. Här. Ta min ring. En gåva. Ta den. Ta den. Felia korsar scenen för att ta ringen. Nej. Le först. Le. Så får du den sen. Ophelia öppnar munnen, drar långsamt upp mungiporna, visar tänderna, fryser. Ta den. Ta den. Den är din. Le först. Le, så tar jag den sen. Gertrud öppnar munnen, drar långsamt upp mungiporna, visar tänderna, fryser. Ophelia går tillbaka till sin mikrofon utan ringen. Är det sant att vi känner kärlek och sen inte känner kärlek? Att vi visar ömhet och sen tar tillbaka ömheten? Det är sant att vissa känner kärlek och andra känner frånvaron av kärlek. Och andra känner frånvaron av kärlek. Och är det sant att om du är lycklig och någon annan inte är det- och ni tittar ut genom fönstret på samma ställe så ser ni helt olika saker. Det är sant att om jag skrattar och andra gråter så var det inte jag som tog glädjen ifrån dem. Inte jag som tog glädjen ifrån dem. Sluta! Sluta! Låt det vara. Var ska jag vara? Någon annanstans. Någon annanstans? Var? Där borta? Eller där? Det finns döttrar som sover ute i snön. Deras kroppar har blivit tvingade att göra sånt som de inte vill. Och de sover ute i snön. Det blir mörkt tidigt om kvällen här. Isen har lagt sig på min lilla damm. Soldaterna klagar på att deras filtar är för tunga. Alla våra tjänare har drabbats av en hudsjukdom. Jag har gett order om att de måste ha långärmat. Jag känner redan klådan krypa upp på kinderna. Och mitt ansikte har kysts av kungar. Och mitt ansikte har kysts av kungar. Idag plockade jag blommor på min promenad. Juva och Felia, en god anledning att vakna lätt till sinnes. En annan sak hände på min promenad- det var en liten flicka och hon hade vantar på händerna. Hon höll på att stänga en dörr. Jag vände mig om för att ropa på henne, men när jag vände mig om försvann hon. Hon var där och sen var hon inte där. Hon är borta. Var har hon stängt in sig någonstans? Jag måste verkligen ta hand om mig själv. Möjligtvis skulle du och jag, Gertrud, kunna gå och leta efter henne nu- vi skulle kunna leta efter henne i gräset där snön håller på att smälta. Vi skulle kunna vilja hitta henne och vår vilja kan bli en magnet som drar henne till oss. 
Vi skulle kunna gå och leta efter henne. Hitta platsen där hon stängt in sig. För det är ingen bekväm plats. Och vara tillsammans med henne. Vara tillsammans med henne. Var är hon? Försvunnen. Hon är försvunnen. Om ett litet barn försvinner så är det inte för att jag gav henne fel vägbeskrivning. Inte för att jag gav henne fel vägbeskrivning. En annan sak hände. Jag vände mig om för att ropa på henne. Och när jag vände mig om hoppade hon. Hon sträckte upp armarna och hoppade. Så där. Sluta. Hur då? Låt det vara. Var? Någon annanstans. Kan inte. Någon annanstans. Kan inte. Kom på hur. Berätta för mig. Nå men då så. Jag bara undrar. Hästarna stupar ute på isen. Detta har jag inte sett själv. Jag fick det rapporterat för mig. Varje dag sker en födsel. Ett bröllop. Någonting som får mig att le. En högfärdig hovman. Min tokiga lilla valp. I kväll ska jag ta av mig samhällsklänningen och ligga naken tillsammans med min kung. Med sammanpressade läppar ska vi skapa en hetta som får de frusna fjordarna att spricka. När jag tryckte ut prinsen i Danmark skrek han. Och medan han skrek blev män dödade. Jag har ofta känt för att mörda min son. Att kväva honom där han låg i vaggan. Att fylla hans skrikande mun med snö. Sorgen har ingen ålder. Varje dag knöt jag händerna till små knytnävar. Men det är förstås privat. Hjärtrud den älskade. Hjärtrud med alla kyssarna. Hjärtrud den välgödda. Hjärtrud, den välknullade. Ung och vacker. Och allt hon gör är att riva i sina finnar. Inget som lämpar sig för myntprägling. Inget som lämpar sig för myntprägling. Sluta. Hur då? Låt det vara. Var? Någon annanstans. Kan inte. Någon annanstans. Där borta. Eller där. Ljusen på Ophelia och Gertrud dämpas. Allt vi ser är filmen av himlen och den fallande snön. Slut.